time has come to retool our playing for ourselves, for our students, and for the greater groove. And the big question remains, of course, what is the future of strings? Come on, let's talk about it. Today, man, this is going to be such a special show. I have been looking forward to speaking with Eugene Friesen for so long since before I started the podcast. I knew this guy was going to be one of the main guys that I wanted to get on the show, and he's a very busy man, but I finally got him to sit down for an hour and chat with me and tell us all how he does what he does, or at least give us some some insight into the process. So let me tell you a little bit. If you're one of the few people in the string world who's not familiar with Eugene, he is a four-time Grammy Award winner. Uh, there aren't a lot of four-time Grammy Award winners in the string world anywhere. So, so that's quite an achievement. He is, of course, a cellist, educator, composer, conductor, uh, a longtime member of the Berkeley College of Music, faculty, uh, has been a, a member of the Paul Winter Consort since forever. When did you start working with those guys? Right out of music school, which was not oh yesterday. God. Yeah, <laughs> just, just five or ten years ago, it seems. <laughs> um, of course, a founding member of Trio Globo with the great Howard Levy and Glenn Velez, and the creator of the legendary Cello Man. Let's not forget Cello Man. I don't know when the last time... Cello Man reared his head, but... Uh, that's there was a Cello Man sighting in uh, Connecticut last year. <laughs> Cello Man, the... Uh, and, of course, my compatriot in three-part invention with pianist Phil Auberg. Uh, one of my favorite recordings that I've ever participated in in which we took the piano trio format, violin, piano, and cello, acoustic. Acoustic for me, a rare acoustic sighting. And uh, um, sort of reimagine Bach. And I encourage you to check it out to just to experience what mostly what this guy does on the cello. No, and, no, uh, no, Tracy, that's a, too modest. I'm sorry, I can't let that stand. That is a beautiful record. I'm really, really proud of that. And what you do on there is exceptional. Thank you, man. And I'm going to try to put a few clips uh, in uh, sprinkled throughout this podcast, yeah, as idea. well as other samples of your great work as a cellist, which makes me uh, ask the question I would, uh, I would sometimes ask off microphone, which is, you know, what are, what are some of the things you're proudest of that you would want me to include in that list of your... Oh, of recorded stuff? Of your recorded uh, work, yeah. Yeah, well, I have a number of recording projects that I've just produced myself, you know, at some point having kind of um, resigned from the music industry, at least as a recording, you know, recording my own stuff and realized that if you if you really want to make the music that you care about most, you have to record it yourself and put it out yeah. yourself. So yep, I've done that. I have a number of 
solo projects. And there's one collection called The Essential Collection, modestly called The Essential Collection, <laughs> <laughs> which, which has some of my favorite tracks from some of my solo CDs. Oh, good. Oh, that's perfect. Nice. Nice. Well, I will, I will definitely dig into that and pull out a few faves. I, I know you have your cello there, and I don't want to impose on you, uh, but I'm hoping that you can talk about and maybe demonstrate um, for, for our listeners how you create the, the particular brand of magic that you do on the cello, which is so uh, intimately involved with rhythm. Uh, you are such a rhythmic player. I've learned so much from you uh, about that and how you do that with this crazy combination of pits, pizzicato, um, slapping left hand or right hand, slapping bow use, and this very um, a sort of a holistic approach to the cello, uh, which is partly melodic and partly rhythmic and uh, and just a, a really a phenomenon. Um, and I would love for you to, you know, talk about how you found those things. You know, what were your influences? Were you a guitar player at one point, a bass player, uh, maybe in, in, you know, in your dark history that you're, <laughs> that you're not confessing to? Or... Um, you know, how, how, did you, uh, how did you find your way to this magical kind of rhythm playing that so many people have, uh, have been emulating? I know, it's kind of ironic in my case because my family is, uh, we're members, staunch members of the Mennonite tradition and congregation. So mm -hmm. rhythm and, well, particularly dancing was completely forbidden for wow. me and my, and my family. So Wow. And I didn't really discover, um, you know, how good dancing felt until I drank a beer surreptitiously when I was 18 years old. And that was really the beginning of like, wow, this really feels good. And man, hey, the beat, check out the beat. And, uh, and then that... Wow, uh, that's, that's a riot, wow. And then I, then I realized just trying to apply some, of the, uh, apply some of the great grooves that I heard on the radio to the cello, that when I was improvising in free improv situations, that it could get me a long way just by keeping keeping a, a steady beat and you know with some interesting accents in it. So that has really been my path, you know, in, into music is rhythm through beer. <laughs> beer. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you know, sometimes we need we need some something to scare us out of our cages, you know, yep. just to say, hey, man, there's no cage, just the door is wide open. What are you doing in there? You know, so. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. Wow. What a, what a crazy story from, from a place of, of basically isolating yourself from your natural instinct to move. Right. Uh, to fully recognizing it and embracing it. You know, I was just uh, teaching a, a workshop yesterday, and uh, and I was saying that grooving is the sound of dance. It's what yeah. dancing sounds like. like mm -hmm. That's uh, good. If you could give sounds to the way your arms and your feet and your hips and your head move, that's what a groove is. 
And it's so intimately connected with movement and rhythmic music comes, it's a byproduct of rhythmic movement. Absolutely uh, right, man. That's a great way of articulating it. Uh, and and so it's it's really fascinating that your first connection with this, your first answer to that question was to go straight to dancing. You discovered dancing, mm -hmm. right? And through through there, you know, trying to trying to make the sounds. Yeah, just like you say, make the sounds that feel like dancing. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I was uh, I was on your website, and I found this uh, little video, short video of you playing a loop. You were doing this kind of left hand pits with, you know, kind of muting ghost notes while you were doing it. And you broke it down and you showed it to us really slowly exactly how you were doing it. Well, actually, I did. I did think of something. I have a piece called uh, Kufungi Sisa, oh, cool. which is uh, the Bantu word for depression, <laughs> <laughs> which actually translates literally as thinking too much. So... Uh, <laughs> This uh, this particular this particular tune has a couple of different layers of loops to it, and which in, involve the technique you're talking about, and of course the pizzicato is one we know, and the left hand pits, not the left hand pits, the left hand slap, which uh -huh. is just a light kind of a thud yeah. on the cello, like so, not not like a real wicked slap, like a bluegrassy slap, you know, or some kind of thing like that. It's just a kind of a gentle thud. And then the other <clears throat> part of it is a right hand pizzicato on a muted string. So yeah. So this So this is the pits with a muted string and that is the slap. Right. So, so, um, because of course this is an audio podcast, um, when you're doing the muted pits, your left hand is just covering the string. So it's resting right. on the, on the fingerboard. Right. right. And the right hand is doing the pits. Yeah, exactly. And then followed by a light thump with the left hand, which is also kind of a muted non-pitched sound. Exactly right. It's kind of like the bass, a bass drum. Oh, maybe not. And of course, some of the tunes are coming out unmuted. The bass notes, bum, bum, those one, five, one, five kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the bass line is unmuted, so those are ringing but then followed by carefully muted other tones, which you do automatically, but will confound many young players. <laughs> well, it might, it might be easier to realize that the slaps tend to happen on the backbeats. Boom, bang. Right. Boom, bang. You know, so it's not a great right. coordination thing. It's really right. just a, an impulse just to keep the backbeat. Yes, yes. And this, you know, kind of uh, is an example of something that I, I, I try to bring into my uh, approach to this, which is to, to remind people that these very complex patterns that we can break down and show you 16th note by 16th note, subdivision by subdivision, pits, slap, muted pits, slap, whatever, that if you look at it, through that perspective of what is each subdivision doing and how do I, you will make yourself crazy. If you look at the simplicity of it and go, okay, this hand is just keeping time on the backbeats, right? You know, that, that process, that it's sort of like, if you let your body dance, it will find the simplicity because it will just move back and forth in an organic, simple way. Kufugu Sisa, baby. <laughs> right? It starts to fall into place without That's having right. to overthink it rhythmically. Exactly. So so what's the takeaway there is just to spend a lot of time with your instrument, with a groove in your head and getting it out of your body into sound. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And allowing yourself, you know, the, the most important part about all this that I always come back to is to remind the student how important it is to move 
how important it is to free yourself up. I talk about the dance of the groove, and it doesn't mean you have to like know salsa steps, you know? All we're talking about when we're talking about dancing is letting your body, letting your head move, letting your, your, your body sway back and forth from side to side or step right. from back and forth uh, just to um, incorporate that, that pulse, the rhythmic pulse in your body. Let your body subdivide for you because that's the most natural way to feel a pulse. Beautifully said, man, beautifully said. And, you know, having spent a lot of my life in a seated position, it's a whole <laughs> other challenge. <laughs> yeah. But my, my teacher, Aldo Parizo, was Brazilian. And, uh, and he advocated practicing the rhythmic side of, you know, classical music, because that's what I, concertos and things like that. When he would practice technical passages, he would literally rock to side to side in his chair. And you know, tap one foot after the other. So he was really integrating the beat, the rhythm into his physicality as he coordinated between his bow and his left hand some of these very tricky, you know, passages. Yeah, yeah, so important. And so that was a lesson too, you know, because um, I remember being in Brazil and visiting, it was an orphanage someplace up in the northwest, uh, northeast, and, uh, and seeing the children dance uh, was just amazing to me. I mean, little, you know, four-year-old, five-year-old kids who just had so much fantastic groove in their bodies because there's something in the music and possibly in the water and the air there that yeah. really values that kind of phys physical response to to pulse. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful thing to see, and you know, the most natural thing. I mean, it's rare to see a kid who doesn't you know, feel that in some way, yeah. you know, I mean, every culture has their own way of feeling it and their own grooves to feel, but most kids under the age of five, if they hear music, you can't stop them from moving. It's, it, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I that's mean, it. And, uh, and I want to um, show you the next couple of layers of this piece, Kufunga Sisa too. Yes, yes. Well, we were talking about the yeah. the, the kind of combination of right hand pits and muted notes and then this next layer to this piece is kind of both it has a pits note and then a pull off and then a muted strike of that open string that i just heard and then going directly to a fingered note on the next string so it's now sound clear? Yeah. And how does that fit over the groove? All right, let's check it out. Oh, that is awesome. It's like a Cora. Well, you asked before, you know, what influences were there, and it's listening to these beautiful field recordings from so many different parts of Africa, and listening to the Cora, and listening to the Mbira, you know, the thumb piano of Zimbabwe. Yes, yes. And those, uh, the music that is traditionally made in those instruments is just fascinating to listen to, and um, surprisingly complex. Yep. Yes. I mean, rhythmically, it has it has the kind of complexity like uh, you know, like a great Bach piece, but then harmonically, it also has this very very subtle way of shifting harmonies. Sometimes in the middle of a bar or in the middle of a beat, that is so intriguing. Hmm. Wow, that is that's really beautiful. Would you do me a favor? Yes. Um, and even though I ha made a point of saying that, you know, you don't want to kind of get get too, um, you know, slowed down by the details you want to think of the bigger picture and the just sort of the simple physicality of it. But would you slow down that first uh, uh, loop, um, uh, like accompanying riff, 
Uh, can you play it in slow motion once for us, just so we can kind of hear all the individual uh, subdivisions of it? Yeah, you're talking about this one? Yeah. Yeah. Is that beautiful. slow enough? Yes, that was beautiful. And uh, I can see you, and I will actually hopefully post uh, that little clip as one of our little um, previews. But for listeners, and that g-duck-a, it's right-hand muted pits, left-hand thump, right-hand muted pits. Exactly right, man. Good for you, yeah. So that they, because they sound so similar, um, people might be going, how is he doing that? So that's how he's doing that. I wonder if it's clear where the quarter pulse is as I'm playing it, because I'm playing kind of a syncopated pattern. So yes. it's one and two and three and 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 yeah yep it's very clear <laughs> it's very clear that's super cool and you know that f- for me as a somebody who's collaborated with you and you know what a, what a lot of people may not appreciate is how how steady that pulse is <laughs> you know <laughs> this is this is the magic you know a lot of people can can you know do can get the sounds or whatever but it won't flow it's like you know it's like a rapper who has a flow or a drummer who's got a feel and a pocket um there's a I'm, thing yeah go ahead no, I'm just so glad you mentioned that, Tracy, because this this is an aspect of kind of the new way to relate, especially to string instruments, that I think should be kind of underscored in, in the way that you're doing. And that is that most of us, you know, who come through, or like one of my students said, I grew up classical. <laughs> I, love <that. laughs> right. I love that expression. <laughs> you know, most of us grow up classical. Yeah. And and we, we kind of inherit or... Um, you know, cultivate this sense of rhythm that is very elastic. Yes. And it's a beautiful thing. I mean, yeah. bel canto, you know, cantabile, this. Yeah. And when you see a whole orchestra of like 100 plus people who can really feel the tempo slowing and speeding up expressively, I mean, it's it's an amazing thing and, and something that I treasure. But playing in a rhythm section is, section is just a whole other, yeah. you know, paradigm it's a whole other way of being and a way of thinking and we don't really cultivate that in our in, in our kind of traditional eurocentric string teaching and and study yes. so what what you're saying is really important you know when you think about drum circles these guys these people you know gather around a campfire and just keep a pulse for hours and hours and hours and sometimes all yes. night long yeah and yes. Something yes. happens. I mean, it's it's almost shamanistic. There is there is a pulsing energy and a power, and which I think is divine. Yes. You know, yes. It has it has a kind of spirituality, the groundness of it. Oh my God! Yes, I, I was just uh, speaking with some classical string teachers yesterday about this in this workshop, and and make it a point because it's it's in my book, and we were kind of going through this, and I was like, you know. In this chapter, I'm talking about the groove, and you have to kind of explain for classical uh, players, because the idea in classical music of being expressive involves this elasticity and playing with with tempo, rubato, and all, it's like retard, and, uh, you know, all of these things that give expressivity in classical music and for a lot of classical players, they feel that if you are playing to a very steady pulse, that it's mechanical and somehow that they're not doing their job, that it's devoid of expressivity. This concept of groove is kind of alien to especially string players. And, and I said, look, you know, it, the groove, a groove represents eternity. It, one bar, I played with Vic Wooten one time, we were jamming, and, and I realized that within the first bar of, of playing with him, he had established a groove that was like a freight train 
going across the prairie at 45 miles an hour that was never going to slow down, was never going to speed up. It was absolutely there like it had been there since the, the Big Bang. And it made me realize that this, this idea of a pulse, the steadiness of it, which you hear when you hear, you can hear one bar of, of Led Zepp cashmere, like, da-da-da, ba-da-da, ba-da-da. And you know that that is, is monolithic. It's going to go on for all time. And, and it made me realize that that groove, uh, it represents eternity. And the reason why is because of our heartbeat that it's this sense that our heartbeat will never end. It's this human desire to feel that pulse go on forever and not mm. to have it slow down and oh, stop. Man, that is so good. That you is know? so good. Yeah, and, and another aspect of what you're talking about is how certain artists relate to a pulse. Mm -hmm. you know, this is a subtlety, too, which I'm not sure that we consciously cultivate you know, in, in the normal traditional training. But uh, when I was in music school, there, we saw a film of Heifetz playing with his longtime accompanist, uh, Beveridge Webster. And um, he was playing some, you know, some unspeakably virtuosic piece, Paganini or something with piano. Right. And, um, and they slowed the film down, and we noticed that he's playing just a little bit ahead of the beat all the time. Uh-huh which gives the impression of this kind of, you know, the catastrophe that's about to happen. <laughs> you feel like, you know, the whole thing could just burst into flames at any moment as part of the excitement of his performance. Yeah. Huh. And his, his pianist knows better than to try to catch up with him. Right. You know, Bever <laughs> Beveridge Webster was just there laying it down, which gave Heifetz the kind of foundation yes. of a pulse that he could really relate to artistically. That he could push. Yeah, and you notice that with Led Zeppelin, too. That's a great example of John Bonham. I mean, when he, when he plays, there is a sense of gravity to his playing that, you know, yes. some people call playing on the back side of the beat. Mm -hmm. So when he does a bluesy kind of a feel like that, you just feel like... That, that there's no other possible way it could be. Yeah, yes. It's a funny thing. It's, it's that pocket, that feel, that you could have a lot of people playing the same exact notes, and yet it just doesn't, it doesn't sound relaxed and steady. Uh, I, I, there's, there's something about approaching music through the visual. Like, I always think of orchestral percussionists, which are sort of the bane of my existence, <laughs> Because, you know, they're trained to read complex rhythms uh, as, as most orchestral, all orchestral players are. To, we look at these dots on the page, we interpolate them through our vision in our brain and this, you know, very high uh, working parts of our, 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 you know, cerebral cortex or whatever it is that are making sense of this and then sending signals to our hands to perform these things. And what ends up happening, it's, it's almost like a latency uh, in, in MIDI or something like that. And, mm. it, and it's the exact wrong way to try to groove. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, you know, taking it absolutely backwards um, yeah. when it should start in your body and be a result of the way that you're moving. It's really tricky, and, and I, I, I feel the pain of this, uh, because any time that you approach something through your eyes, you know, that, that is something that needs a whole layer of provisos to go along with it. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you have to internalize it through your eyes, get it out of your eyes as soon as possible. Yeah. And I think with complex parts like symphonic players play, that's very difficult. Yeah. Yes. And of course, you know, playing, you know, when, when you're in an ensemble that's like, what is it, like 50 feet from one side to the other? Right. You know, you could be 50 feet from the conductor. So, I mean, the whole relationship to a pulse is slightly ambiguous. It's, yeah. it's tricky with a group that size. Yeah. And, I, Which you know... The genius of a rhythm section. You know, you're just playing with your friends and you're sitting right next to them and you can just totally lock in. Right. Right. And, you know, I've had this experience uh, playing with orchestras where um, I, I keep expecting that, that they're going to play with me, like jam, 
<laughs> with me the way a band does. And if I'm yeah. playing a subdivision, especially, if right. I'm playing something that involves the 16th note subdivision, right? Whatever, that they're going to just groove to that because they're musicians, they've got ears. And if the conductor is faster or slower than me, they are just simply with the conductor as if I have absolutely no bearing on the situation whatsoever. Oh, dear. Um, and an, ir an irrelevant soloist. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, to, to their credit, I guess it's they're trained that way in order to be together because whatever whatever's going on, at least everybody's together. If the conductor's wrong, at least yeah. everybody's wrong. Right, you know, right, right. Rather than people splitting off and going, okay, I'm going to follow the soloist and other people going, well, you know, I'm just following the beat or whatever. Um, so at least everybody's following the beat, but it's as if what I'm playing has absolutely nothing to do with what they're playing. They're looking at dots and following a stick and hoping like, you know, as if I'm recording remotely somewhere else and somebody's going to mix it together and post or something. But there's an audience sitting in front of us and I'm moving and trying to give some sort of body English to the orchestra. And it's completely, absolutely pointless. Um, and I, I, I have this inventing and have this little tirade, not, not to berate our, our, all, I know so many people in orchestras, it's not their fault. Um, it's just the culture of being in an orchestra. But I raise this subject because you conduct an orchestra at Berkeley. And I, I, would, I would love to uh, hear a little bit about that and how you deal with that uh, and your goals with that orchestra, how you rehearse them, the material oh, you, you play and things like that. Oh man, I love talking about this because yeah, this is a this is a string orchestra that is really built on groove. It's yes. built on pulse, and um, and it's kind of comes out of exactly what you said earlier. Is what I've heard time and time again is that the string players' time sucks. Yeah, you know, and I tell that to my orchestra and I say, you know, this this institution is built on that. This is this is what we're addressing exactly yeah. that, yeah. and so with the with the ensemble I directed Berkeley College of Music called Berkeley World Strings, yep. which was founded in 2010. Uh, this is a group that really creates and commissions um, compositions that are built on the idea of getting strings to completely fulfill the rhythmic aspects of a great rhythm section. Mm -hmm. So we do music from all over the world, and uh, and in this at Berkeley we have players, accomplished players from all over the world who really represent some of these styles, and um, so we learn from them. We learn from the people who really have this deep in their bones, and then we kind of uh, take apart what that groove is. You know how the drummers of that tradition. Um, convey that groove and break it into different parts for the string orchestra and just start very very slowly talking about the accents you know where they fall speed it up and it creates a great great experience for people and as you probably know Tracy from playing in, in orchestra and chamber music I mean just the most fun experiences can be when you really have an awareness of what the other parts are doing and you feel like you're, you're absolutely in the pocket with them, in that zone with other people. And expanding that to a larger number, like Berkeley World Strings is usually anywhere from 17 to 30 players. Uh, it's, just, it's just exhilarating. Hmm. That's beautiful. You know, Mimi uh, Rabson said that playing rhythm is the most can be the most fun thing you'll ever do in music. This idea of, of grooving, of playing rhythm, you know, we are taught from day one with our instruments to, to play as a melodic instrument. How to get a nice tone, a beautiful sound, a singing tone, connected bow, you know, bow strokes, all that kind of stuff. And we, we just 
brush over the idea of playing rhythm as this, oh, it's this drudgery that, you know, violists have to do or something. Oh, my, <laughs> oh my God, Tracy. I mean, yes, so, so true. I, I mean, and, and the repertoire that we really value and our role models, you know, playing this just uh, incredibly difficult repertoire at a... Yeah an impossibly high standard, you know, yes. uh, really devalues the whole accompaniment part of our reality, which, you know, for anybody is, well, especially for us cello players, is, you know, probably 80% of what we do. Yeah. It is. And there's a just a great joy to be found in it. I mean, I absolutely love accompanying. And so many of the things that I've learned about rhythm as an accompanist uh, inform, you know, when when I do take a solo, too. Because yes. even in the solo realm, you know, a breakthrough for me, I remember in a recording session with Trio Globo that, uh, that I was overdubbing a cello solo and having some trouble with it. And my bandmate, Howard Levy, just said, well, just relate to it rhythmically. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was a complete breakthrough when I just sank into the groove and then suddenly, you know, there were notes under my fingers that wanted to, to dance in the, on that. Yes, such a good point. I actually have a whole chapter in my book uh, sort of focused on that, the idea that for a lot of string players, classical players, they think, oh, I can't improvise. I don't know how to improvise. I don't. Right. Because they're thinking, I don't, I haven't studied. I know jazz is deep and complex, and I haven't studied theory. I don't understand chords. I don't know how to read a chord chart. Just move with it, groove with it, and, and allow yourself to, to play with it a little bit. It's handmade music. Every bar does not have to be a replica of the bar before it, even if you're trying to play the same thing. It's going to come out different, differently over the over course of time. And yeah. those subtle differences in how you're playing a repeated phrase becomes the beginning of allowing yourself to change it and allowing yourself to begin to improvise rhythmically uh, from the very earliest stages of that. And when you get good at that and you realize how much fun it is to just keep morphing a groove yes. around uh, and how that can just carry you right into soloing um, how much yeah. music you can make with one or two notes. And you so, don't... so true, so true. Yeah, and I think we just, because there's so much emphasis on the, on the melody as, as listeners, you know, and how an accompanist will support the melody, I think we really devalue the role that we have as accompanists. Yes. Yep. So it's it's almost like a matter of uh, of equity. Yeah. And and, <laughs> yeah. and maybe maybe more is just a matter of our focus because if we're playing a repeated pattern, you know, we we start to dissociate and start to feel frustrated that we're not playing the melody when in actuality, you know, if we just breathe deep and sink into that groove, there is a great reward in just being present. Yeah. Yes, it, it really is a values kind of thing. It's yeah. it's it's sort of this, uh, it's just this focus that began maybe with, with Paganini uh, quite a while ago and certainly overtook string pedagogy in the 20th century of, of um, pyrotechnics and, and all, you know, just that kind of playing, not just on the violin, but certainly on the cello as well. And, uh, to, and this sort of value structure where we think that's worth more than the groove that's underlying yeah, it, right. and the harmony and the chordal, the chordal playing that supports that somehow be, became this one is less than the other when it's it's they're like the two halves of your brain or something. You know, they're, one is no better than the other. They're just they need each other in order to coexist. That is know? so great. That is so great, Tracy. Totally with you. And another way of uh, looking at that might be to just to regard our habit in the conservatory or maybe as practicing musicians to really break things apart. We split things into little bits. We cut them up. You know, yeah. a melody is different from a harmony. A harmony is different from a rhythm. It's different right. from a sound color, you know. Right. A dominant chord is different from a major seven chord. I mean, there are all these... Uh, differentiations that we make until at the end of the day, you know, with your brain so full of splitting things up into pieces, you forget about the wholeness that music actually is. 
Oh, so, so well put. Can yeah. you can you participate in that wholeness as a performer? And whether you're playing accompaniment or playing the melody, it really makes no difference whatsoever. It's one thing. Yeah. Yes. So beautifully put. It's like a yin yang, and and you keep, you don't have the yin yeah. without the yang. You know they. They balance each other, and the more there's one, there's th th gives more space to the other. Oddly yeah, enough, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. you know, I noticed yeah. in in uh, uh, your Berkeley bio, you talk about uh, rhythmic technique that you teach rhythmic technique, and I'm curious about uh, you know not to uh, again slice and dice it, but what what your curriculum is for that? How you go about um, teaching rhythmic technique. Yeah, and that's a, that's a tricky thing. I mean, I remember what Matt Glazer said about jazz, that it can be learned, but it can't be taught. <laughs> oh, my God, that's so heavy. Wow. I know, just chew on that for a minute. Wow, <laughs> that's so beautiful. Wow. But but yeah, bringing bringing people you know in, into the connection that we've been talking about for the last bit of time. That's that's purely it. It comes from breathing, it comes from movement, it comes from dance, and then specifically you know on on cello, it just comes from uh, keeping a pulse with the bow. First of all, yeah, and being able to just just keep keep a pulse and the whole concept of strum bowing. You know, and I first heard that expression from you. Uh, I think it's so important, you know, that we simply get our arms to relate to a pulse mm -hmm. physically, and then the sound is also relating to the pulse physically. And from there, you can go on to exercise a number of the internal kind of uh, accenting options that there are, down bows and up bows, and alternating them and subdividing it in different ways. But I think that that is a is a really important way to get people to, to start activating their their innate rhythmic sense to their instruments. Yeah, yes. Well, you know, uh, we're all fighting the good fight together. Yeah, yeah. And I, <laughs> the only reason, thing that I'm talking about is stuff that I've learned from folks like you and Daryl Anger and, and people who demonstrate this so, so well and, and with with this sort of holistic thing. You know, I was talking about like, why does your groove sound better than somebody who's trying to read it off a page? It's because it's organic, you're, you're moving, it's coming out of the way you're breathing and moving and all of that kind of stuff. And that's, that's what I picked up from you and from, from other people and just trying to kind of spell it out for folks. That I uh, yes, I, uh, that's modest of you to say because you've contributed so much on your own. But um, thank you. But w what what I might say also is that improvisation I think is so important because that is the the context in which I began to relate to my instrument more kind of authentically. Yes. Yes. Talk and about I, that for a second. Well, it's it in, in a way it's it's just become everything. I noticed uh, when I first recorded myself improvising that there was a sound that I made that is so different from the sound that I had cultivated as a classical player. Ah, yes, you know, an intensity of vibrato, a kind of springiness uh, in the articulation and stuff like that 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 I really valued as a way of approaching you know Mozart and and Brahms and stuff like that, that I just didn't do that when I improvised. I had a completely different sound, and it was a sound that, in some bizarre way, sounded like me. Yep. And I just began to admire, you know, that kind of naive way of making a sound. Hmm. I say naive because there was just nothing self-aware about it. Yes. It was just the sound that I make, you know, when I'm, when I'm thinking of music or when, or when music is coming through me. Yeah, yeah. And then I think the same thing is true for rhythm, you know, and, and it just comes back to the, you know, thinking too much. Yeah. Just really internalizing it and practicing something simple with a lots and lots and lots of repetition. The pizzicato stuff that I do um, is, was really born out of many decades of repeating very, very simple 
um, rhythmic phrases, you know, and gradually as I began to embellish it with different left hand moves and listening to Chora music, listening to Embira, and of course a lot of the amazing drummers that I got to work with in the Paul Winter Consort. And uh, in particular, you know, I mean, Jamie Haddad uh, is, is an incredible mm -hmm. drummer, mentor of mine, and Glenn Velez. Mm -hmm. Glenn Velez is kind of the really brought the frame drum into modern usage and uh, and played with him for for decades and uh, and I noticed when we were on tour you know I, I was in the habit of going from the airport to the hotel to take a nap before going to soundcheck and uh, and I noticed Glenn would just go straight to the venue and he was just there practicing you know while I was sleeping and so after a while I had <laughs> I had the idea I would go with him and just see what that was like and uh, and so often there weren't like multiple rooms to practice in at the venue, so I'd find myself you know in the same room with him, and the only sensible thing to do is just try to get my cello to talk the kind of rhythm talk that he was that he was speaking on his on his drums. Yeah, and he explained to me some of the concepts of accent subdivision of kind of nesting odd time meters within each other you know a 516 inside of a 58 inside of a 54 and how he would represent that on a single instrument like the frame drum uh, really got me to thinking about how to represent that with the cello but I, I think even more important was just uh, kind of through osmosis is kind of absorbing his relationship to pulse which is so profound so playing, playing with other people, and especially uh, uh, people who, who you really admire like that is just a huge boon. Yes, yes. You know, you were speaking about improvisation a few minutes ago um, and how you discovered your own sound by doing that. And as you were speaking, I was thinking of that uh, I've, and I think anybody who's, recorded and, and tried to record themselves uh, has experienced this. You know, you kind of have something, a solo, let's say, that you sort of have an idea, you know, you did a take, you want to do another take, you sort of, and you're doing your third take and you're trying to get, okay, let me play that phrase again, because it was a good phrase, let me do it, you know, and, yeah. and each time it gets further and further from the truth. <laughs> Yes. Right? From the truth. That's right. And and it becomes and, and I was thinking that it's kind of like acting. Like if you have a mm. script and you're trying mm -hmm. to read that script and you can tell right away when somebody is reading from a script. Mm -hmm. You know? No you know, unless they're like just the, the best actor can fool you, but but you can sort of tell when when there are words that they are about to say, you know, that they're that they know they're gonna say. As opposed to, let's say, a method acting where somebody's truly improvising uh, and they don't know what they're going to say. Just like in a real conversation mm -hmm. where you don't know that in three minutes from now you're going to read this speech. And so you're preparing your mm -hmm. character to rev up for this speech that you're now delivering. You don't know what the hell is going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and and that that... The, the reality of improvising, of actually making stuff up in the moment, changes the way you play that phrase. Mm -hmm. As soon as you repeat it and you're trying to recreate it, it's, it's gone. It's like mm -hmm. this, it went into the ether and, and yeah. you know, uh, and that, that magic of improvising is something that string players are just generally not familiar with and is the truth of, of playing for the most part. Wow, great. So in theater, this is something that I think they call motivation. Yes. And um, something that I've noticed is kind of, kind of a backward use of this is, you know, knowing how I sound when I'm improvising then becomes my aesthetic for playing something that's written. You see what I mean? Yes. So I, I kind of know, I recognize a sound that springs authentically. Yes. Through, through me on the instrument. And that it becomes my standard for, you know, what, what is a, a good representation of a written line, too. Right, right. I mean, that's the thing that I heard so much in recording sessions from Paul Winter is, it just sounds too written. Mm -hmm. And in the early days, even when I was improvising, it sounded written. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Huh, funny. <laughs> funny. Yeah. And in, unless you you have experience with that and know what that sound is and right. have that sort of in your toolbox, in a sense, or at least to be able to recognize it, know when you're nailing it, know when you're missing it, which, you know, is part of the artistic process, um, you know, to sort of edit yourself a bit or whatever. Um, you know, you can't get it. And, and it takes years of being familiar with your voice to, to recognize when you're using it. Uh, you know, uh, but for so many classical players, they've just never done anything that wasn't written on a page already, you know, unless they're practicing scales. And which is a funny thing, because so many uh, classical players say, well, I can't improvise. I don't know how to improvise. I was like, play me a G major scale. All right, play me a G major ar arpeggio. I, you know, you just made that up kind of, you know, where to start, <laughs> where to, how many octaves. You know, I mean, it's in a sense not that different if you're playing a, on a G chord, <laughs> you know, play part of that scale, play a scale figure. You're improvising, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's it. That's <laughs> it. Yeah. Yeah, we've just again we've we just overthink it, and and the the main part of it is just we're not encouraged to make music that way. Yeah, but I mean what that does, and thank goodness it's changing now. Yeah, you know there's there's a been a real revolution in teaching, at least in the string world, and I suspect in other parts of the orchestral, you know, um, community as well that we're just learning to really integrate music theory onto our instruments at an early age. Uh, which just is a huge game changer for our understanding of how music, uh, what the music that we're playing, but also for our ear training. Yes. That we really understand how the notes we're playing are relating to the environment that we're playing in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just more and more I realize in my own playing that so much of it is just ear training. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one, one last little uh, thing I want to talk about and then we'll, we'll wrap it up here. Um, and that is this idea of of playing chords, of being approaching yes. the instrument as a chordal right. instrument. And this is something which I needed to add two lower strings. You know, I play mostly what I play is a six string electric. And having those two lower strings, I put them on there because I wanted to sound like a guitar and be able to play power yeah. chords and and stuff like that. And uh, as I grew up, I realized that uh, you know what I was really doing was approaching the instrument as a chordal instrument, which which was what, uh, as a side product of that, taught me how to play chords with my bow and all the strum stuff. But um, this, you know, I can't get past the fact that that you could have a, a, a an eight-year-old who wants to play the guitar go into his very first guitar lesson, <laughs> not know a single chord, Somebody shows him like E to A. Like they play these two chords and they can jam and keep a groove and sing songs and entertain their friends. They know how to play, and compose. How to play rhythm yeah. and compose and dance while they're doing it, most likely if they're under the age of 10, you know. Um, and you could have an, again, I'm going to go orchestral percussionist who could have studied their craft for 30 years and not have as good a groove. <laughs> you know am i wrong i mean certainly not wrong i mean you know guitar players uh, i remember meeting a guitar player early in my life who just was absolutely befuddled that i didn't play chords on the cello <laughs> i mean why would you not play chords you have four strengths right <laughs> it's a chordal instrument why did right. you do that right and and now i mean it's really at the center of so much of uh, how I teach navigating and reimagining the cello fingerboard yes. to, uh, to really convey a sound of a certain harmonic environment. It's yes. really about, especially on cello, where, you know, w w one of my goals is to minimize shifting, especially, uh, you know, playing yeah. solo kind of material and kind of really, really, you know, jamming on something. Yeah, and so those those hand shapes that relate to different chords are incredibly important. Yes, and then grabbing the notes around in that one shape without shifting um, just gives you a lot of color to add to the chord 
and so give scales that fit across the fingerboard, etc. So the, the just imagining the fingerboard as a as a chordal instrument has yeah. become really important. Yeah, and if you don't mind, pick up your cello. Just kind of give us an example. I guess you're think, talking about like root fifth tenth, kind of as a as a left hand structure. Exactly what you say. That's what it is. It's right. basically just an F triad, but voiced root fifth. Ten. Which is sort of the cello, and there's a, a similar, um, yeah. slightly different thing on a violin because we can pack more notes in, um, which is a, a kind of the uh, cello version of bar chording on a guitar. Exactly right, yeah. And, and cer certain hand shapes, major, minor, major seven, dominant seventh, et right. cetera. Exactly, and that these yeah. exist, you know, like when you start, again, you go to your first lesson on a guitar, and they teach you some basic chords or right. by the, your fifth lesson you're learning bar chords if you have you know if your hand is big enough yeah uh, and so you can then play a chord any in any key anywhere on the neck because you just slide it up and down yeah and it's a movable chord you shape. use the same hand shape exactly right. and, and you you mentioned power chords too which i think is right. uh, is such an important way to get a kid really relating to an ensemble you know in a simple way just by playing the root and the fifth right and again, that's just, you can move it or not. And from there, going to a root to fifth bass line. Yep. <laughs> it's a simple way to make a really important contribution to a piece. Yeah. And just that whole approach of thinking about chords. Like, okay, I'm going to play a bar of D major rather than a bunch of notes that you may not even realize are part of a D major chord because, you know, who teaches harmony in the string world? You know, if you, I, I studied with one of the greatest string, you know, violin teachers yeah. ever, Ivan Galamian. He yeah. never once talked about a chord. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's phenomenal. It really is. It's, it's amazing. Well, we could, we could diss the classical world uh, for hours, but well, I mean, more than that. I mean, I think this this kind of commentary is really important, and it would be futile if we weren't doing something about it. But <laughs> yes. but you're doing something about it. I certainly am making every effort I can to yes, do something you are. about it. Yeah. And in that respect, you know, what I see is um, younger players who are just having a lot of fun with their instruments. Yes. <laughs> They're having a lot of fun with their instruments. They're playing creatively. They're inventing new ensembles, you know, with yeah. kind of unusual instruments with people from way outside their tradition, mm -hmm. you know, that there's no certainly sheet music written for. Yep. And they're finding a way to expand their own vocabulary just by just by playing. Yeah. Yes. They are the Using future. Their ears. They are the future of strings. You know, the kids, you know, one thing about kids is they like to have fun. You know, and, uh, and, you know, and funky starts with fun, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, and it's really true. I mean, who the hell wants to practice when you can play, you know? I mean, that, that is true of so many of the great creative artists that I know, that they yeah. just weren't willing to spend that, you know, number of hours practicing something that they weren't completely 100% sure represented their values anyway. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, if if it's not fun and if it isn't playful, you know, the best, the most confident and and best performers uh, that I've ever seen, and, and that I I try to emulate this when I get on stage, get on stage, is that they're they're playful. There's this sense of playing yeah. with the audience that they're gonna surprise them or trick them or have fun with them or they're not afraid of proving themselves. They have nothing to prove. They're just being playful and and creating right from the get-go a dialogue and a sense of fun. Uh, and, you know, that's that's something that's gotten pretty far outside the classical, you know, approach to performance and is so deeply a part of jazz and pop music with a sense of humor and that's possible and just a sense of playfulness uh, instead mm. of a sense of practice and work yeah, and yeah, achievement yeah. you know which all has its place and don't get me wrong i you know i, I mean discipline is has its place at, you know and is essential for 
Well, any... you, you know how to practice, Tracy. You, you play very hard music that was written and, for and, you. And so you. you know and you how know, to shed it. Yeah, you know, and pra you know, pra we, we've all had to discipline ourselves, but I, I really try to avoid using the P word and as for practice and just swapping <laughs> it out with play any time, you know. You don't, you don't work a violin, you play a violin. <laughs> so, you know. But speaking of play, speaking of play, all this, all this chit-chat is, is lovely, but you know the real reason I've asked you onto this podcast is so that we can play a round of Not My Gig. And this, Not my is, gig. this is where I get a chance to quiz my guest on something that hopefully they know nothing about. Well, that should not be too difficult in <laughs> my case. So Eugene Friesen, four-time Grammy Award winner, oh, cellist, educator, composer, conductor, oh, member of blah, blah, blah. Oh, my God. A.K.A. Oh. Cello Man. Mm. We're going to find out how much you know oh. about... Jello Man. Couldn't we just come back and do this some other time? <laughs> Jello Man is known in the Philly area. Oh, yeah. Indie rock scene as the guy who says, sells cheap jello shots at festivals. He what? brews up his liquor laced delights 30 gallons at a time, yielding 3,000 jello shots. What? That he sells at concerts. I am so doing that. <laughs> so he's a fixture in the Philly indie rock scene. And we're going to find out how much you know about Jell-O Man. For instance, yes. how many pounds of Jell-O does it take to brew up a 30-gallon batch? And for extra okay, credit, how many gallons of vodka? <laughs> Is it A, 5 pounds of Jell-O, B, 7 pounds, or C, 10 pounds? It is five pounds of jello. <laughs> it is actually seven pounds. It is of seven jello. pounds of jello. <laughs> and is it really seven pounds of jello? And oh my God. for extra credit, how much vodka do you think goes into uh, three thousand shots? Oh, I think I think thirty gallons. <laughs> I think uh, I think a single bottle would do it. At a festival, I mean, come on, be responsible. <laughs> well, a the bottle answer... of vodka for thirty <laughs> gallons. It's actually. Three gallons of vodka per what? thirty gallons. Of oh my god! These people actually are feeling something after they eat this. <laughs> All right, wow, Jello Man is my new hero. This is excellent, and a possible, uh, you know, a side hustle for Jello Man. This is... When you're doing those those kid concerts. <laughs> yeah, suddenly people are at the merch table. <laughs> Let's go, kids. Oh, dear. All right. So Jello Man is the brother of a famed indie rocker, actually. Is that famed indie rocker A, Kurt Vile of Kurt Vile and the Violators, which is a great name right there, Kurt Vile and the Violators. Uh, is it B, Matt Schultz of Cage the Elephant, or C, Glenn Phillips of Toad the Wet Sprocket? It's Matt Schultz. <laughs> it is, in fact, Kurt Vile. Yeah, it's Kurt Vile. <laughs> is it really? Oh, God, Vile and Jello, man. That's Kurt so... Vile. It was um, just, it just was, was too good. It, I, yeah, I just didn't yeah, think It seemed like a real. plant, yeah. It seemed like yeah, I was just throwing it that in there. <laughs> wow. Okay, yeah. uh, here's, your last, here's your last question. Indie rock band Bully, okay? Uh, indie rock band Bully's Alicia Bognano ranks Jello Man in the top what? of the strange local characters that she has met <laughs> on the road. Is it in her top two, her top five, or top ten? Oh, gosh. I can imagine just thinking about the people I've met on tour. Lots of good stories there. Top two. Well, let me ask a... a I, I'm just <laughs> needing a clue. Yes. What does Jello Man wear? <laughs> Typically, <laughs> you know, I wish I, I mean, could you... answer that for you. Okay, so I'm just spinning the table on you, Tracy. <laughs> so you do not know. I don't know Jello how how strange of a character he is. Is the question? Uh, I think that that's in the top two. You are correct. You are okay, correct. I got one it, right. it, it, the, can we keep going? We can, because there's an extra <laughs> point. There's an extra an extra credit. 
point here. And this well, one, I mean, that's a point. <laughs> that's not an extra point. That is a point. Here's, and here's your, here's your extra point. For, and this, this can be, you, you can put it all on this one. This can, you can like all or nothing on this yeah, one. Yeah, I think I'll do that. Okay. <laughs> all right. Jello Man garnishes each shot with a little something special. Oh. Is it A, a sprinkle of sugar? Mm-hmm. B, a sprinkle of emergency powder, mm. or C, a sprinkle of Pop Rocks. Oh, wow. You know, I'd like to think that he has this kind of quality of social responsibility that he would put emergency on there, but just the fact of what he's doing, I think, negates that as an option. <laughs> So I, th- I think I'll go with Pop Rocks. You I'm are everything on, on the money, my yes. friend. Wins it all yes. in the last round. <laughs> Even though I tried to fool you on the emergency, because you got to admit that was a good. It was a good. <laughs> that is good. At a festival, you know, people are trying to stay right? healthy, but you didn't fall. You want to do it. the right thing. I mean, especially to assuage the part of you that thinks, well, maybe I shouldn't right. have vodka. Exactly. Right I'm but there help. is emergency on exactly. it. Exactly. But no, so. he he, true to brand, he yeah. he put sprinkles it with pop rocks. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. My God, my new hero. There he Jell-O is, Jello Man. Love this. You just- Does he have JelloMan.com? I'm going to check this out. <laughs> I, I went to quite a... I had to look hard. I was... <laughs> you really did. You did your due <laughs> diligence on Jell-O, man. Eugene, it's been so great to hang with you, man. We, you, Thank you, I Tracy. feel like we are birds of a feather. We are. We have on, so much in common. stuff, and it's just been way too long, and I look forward to, to hanging in person and uh, maybe cracking that beer and uh, and revisiting the dance instinct <laughs> perhaps yes, even just to keep the doors of the cage wide open <laughs> i love you know, it it's a daily exercise we got to jump out <laughs> got to jump out every day awesome brother awesome brother yeah, thank right you on. so much for taking some time and sharing all this with us thank really, you so really much for the great it, commentary the questions yeah rock Thanks, on Tracy. my brother yeah you too take care Tracy yeah man see you Thanks for listening. If you dug what we're talking about and you want to dig in deeper, please check out the For the Greater Groove Facebook group where I post about each of my guests and where you can leave your comments and opinions. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And if you're digging the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave me a rating or a review. Thanks a lot and groove on.